So Psalm, one, Psalm chapter 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, you are mighty and good. You are the creator of all. Um, Nothing comes to pass without your knowledge. Um, But we have oftentimes uh, felt, as the psalmist here talks about, that we are in distress, um, especially uh, over the past year and a half, God, uh, we have felt uh, distress in our times, unrest, um, due to the pandemic, uh, due to uh, strife uh, in our political system, due to little disasters around the world, um, due to war uh, and famine. God, we pray uh, today uh, that you would work in particular through your church to, um, to bring about your kingdom, um, that we would be comforted uh, by your spirit, uh, and that we would be uh, aware of the fact that you are uh, a God who answers, um, and that we would see that in our lives, um, and that we would be able to uh, proclaim that to the nations. Um, God, we pray uh, specifically for uh, Mercy House, uh, that you would be among us today, that you would be, your spirit would be on Tommy as he preaches today, that y- his words um, uh, would come from you, uh, that you would speak today, God. Um, and that this would not be the work of man, um, uh, but of your spirit moving in us. Uh, and we pray uh, that, um, that we would go from this place uh, and that we would take that message, those words, and that we would proclaim them to our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow students, um, and that you would be glorified in all of this, God. Um, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Jake. All right. Good morning, Mercy House. How are we? Good. All right. Sounded good. My name is Tommy. I want to welcome you to Mercy House. Glad you're here this morning. So this Sunday, it's a fun Sunday. This is the first Sunday where we're starting off our fall sermon series called Long Road Home. And we're going to be walking through Psalms 120 to 134, which are a collection of psalms called the Songs of ascent. And this morning, we're going to set up this series as a whole, and then we're going to dive into the first psalm. Now, before we dive into the text, I do have a pretty serious question, and I need some honest um, public confession from at least one person in this room right now, which is the question that I'm going to ask you right now. What is the one song that you cannot get out of your head that you're going to play on repeat right now and just vibe to for hours? Go. What's that song? What is it? Anybody? We're not moving forward until I hear it from somebody, so I'm comfortable in this awkwardness. Nobody? Kaleidoscope by? A Great Big World. A Great Big World. Thank you very much. Well, for me, it is a song called Speechless, the full version from uh, 2019's Aladdin by Naomi Scott, and it goes like this. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to sing it for you right now. 
What I'm trying to communicate is that for us as a culture, music plays such an important role uh, for us. As, as human beings, we sing songs and we listen to music not just to help us pass time, but to prepare ourselves and get hyped for things that we need to do. Uh, to help uh, keep cadence while we're running and to help us celebrate weddings and special events and we move and we dance to music. It gives us a way to help communicate our love and affection for somebody. We use music to help process heartbreak and sorrow or just to help enhance a beautiful day outside when you're driving down the road and the sun is shining, your windows are down, and you're blaring that music. Music can help us uh, be the back, in the background as we focus and as we work on tasks, but it can also be appreciated as the center of our focus. When we go to like a live show or a concert, in other words, if you look at the poet Henry Longfellow, he says, music is the universal language of mankind. It's something that we can all relate to, something that we can all understand, and something that we all pretty much experience in life. Regardless of culture or time period, breaking out into song is as natural as laughing or crying. And we see this specifically in the history of Israel as a people group. So our last sermon series, if you were with us, it was just a short two-week two sermon series on the chapters uh, 15 and 16 of Exodus. And it showcased the Bible's first recorded song uh, written by Moses in response to seeing this powerful, incredible rescue of Israel from Egypt by the hand of God. And what we saw when we read that in chapter 15 of Exodus is that it wasn't just singing for singing's sake, but it was singing for the sake of worship to God. And just as music is central to the human experience for us today, it, it was also a huge part of the lives of the men and women in the Bible, and which brings us to the book of Psalms. So when you look at the Psalms, it's a collection of 150 songs sung by Israel, often accompanied by musical instruments, which span centuries in their composition and their writing. So that being said, there are some key things we need to know and remember as we spend this entire semester looking at these psalms, which I'm actually really excited about. Uh, but before I jump in, I do want to share a couple of resources with you. And at Mercy House, we, like, we want to, on a Sunday, um, en encourage you, shepherd you, feed you spiritually, but then we also want to be able to equip you uh, to be able to feast in God's Word for yourself. So uh, these are a couple of resources that I highly recommend that you pick up. You can grab these on Amazon. They're about 10 to 15 bucks a pop. They're totally worth the money. The first is a classic commentary uh, in, in, by Derek Kidner, which is a very accessible commentary. So not super heady, words that you can pronounce mostly, and it helps kind of dive into the nuances of the language, historical and cultural context of each psalm. So if you're looking to like study the psalms, I highly recommend you grab this book. Another book that's great is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson, and it's great for devotional meditations on the Songs of Ascent. Um, there are great things to ponder and think about. It's excellent for a quiet time, um, so I really encourage you to grab that if, if you're looking for something like that. Uh, but these are two great resources. Throughout the semester, you'll probably see references to these, um, and we'll post those links to these on social media. So if you follow us on social media, you can click on the link uh, and purchase those on your own dime. But again, highly recommend those as resources. Let me jump back into this. So the Psalms are unique from other parts in Scripture in a few ways. And one of those being uh, the fact that, as I mentioned, these are songs. And so they typically be sung, typically in a choir setting with, with musical instruments that are being played at the same time. And, and songs, as we mentioned, that songs are beautiful ways that we can express truth and, and to emphasize meaning. As you read the Bible, read through Scripture, um, it's not uncommon for a writer to just kind of break out in song. You actually see this quite often in Scripture. And it's with the purpose of helping to just further paint a picture or, or, or really add dimension um, and really amplify the point that the author is trying to make. It's really common, especially in historical Hebrew literature. But what's really awesome about uh, the Psalms is how songs uh, here can, can transcend the original language. So when you think about poetry and you think about music lyrics, they're, they're really written uh, and focusing on technical composition of the words themselves. There's a lot of thought being put into the sounds which are rooted in the original language. The use of literary devices that you might know about, like repetitive sounds through alliteration or assonance or consonance. Um, you may see things like ordered syllables, like uh, songs or poems written in iambic pentameter, or maybe just rhyming things together as with limericks, which is awesome and beautiful in its own. But uh, the problem with that is that it doesn't really translate beyond the original language that it's written in. But Hebrew poetry is different. 
So instead of focusing on the technical composition and the sound of the words, um, uh, Hebrew poetry and songs focus on the general rhythm and the meaning of those words. The songs are composed with parallel ideas, contrasting points, along with repetition of concepts, which means that it's not really constrained to the technical language of Hebrew which is cool. And my hope is that as we learn more about Hebrew songwriting and poetry this semester, as we study really the art form of the poetry and familiarize ourselves with consistent themes and concepts that these writers and songwriters use, that we'll actually be able to appreciate the Psalms in a whole new way. Um, And I know that as I've studied it, that's been true for me, and I hope that that's going to be true for the rest of us as a church this semester. See, the real beauty of the Psalms is that they are universal, in many ways, and can be understood and appreciated in pretty much any language, which is astounding. So that's kind of the Psalms in general. Let's jump right into verse 1 of chapter 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. So these songs of ascent are a collection of songs that would have been sung by the Israelites in their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And this would have been done multiple times a year with people traveling far and wide. And in a day where there weren't airplanes, there was no Amtrak, there wasn't an Uber that you could call. This this is a really long and strenuous experience. We're talking about days, maybe even weeks worth of travel, often on your feet. And you're pretty much carrying your luggage and all of your supplies for traveling on your back. So the songs of ascent were the songs that would be sung uh, during the ascent to Jerusalem. It's kind of like a playlist, if you will, that would help pass time, uh, but it would also encourage those who are traveling, and ultimately it would prepare the hearts of the people, the pilgrims, to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. So the songs of ascent aren't just a playlist for the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, though. They're actually a playlist for all of us here today. And so in the weeks to come, we'll go through this whole compilation album, which is what it is, and and we're going to see truths and meditations that are incredibly fit for us as we navigate the long road of life. And so this first verse, as we read it, it sets the tone and the pace, really for the entire series. The psalmist says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. This simple sentence jams in three truths that are worth unpacking for us this morning. The, the, the writer of this psalm starts out by saying, in my distress, in my distress. See, distress is understood as extreme anxiety or sorrow or pain. Last fall, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, where if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, that's kind of the main point of what it's communicating, is that uh, the the world that we live in, the world that we know, uh, includes a lot of anxiety, sorrow, and pain. Like, that's kind of the backdrop of our human existence. Some of us may experience that more than others, some maybe more acutely than others, but I really doubt that there's anybody in this room right now who would say that they've never experienced some kind of distress. And the psalmist opens the album with a line that draws in the listeners to a common, relatable truth for all of us, the sobering reality that the long road of life is just peppered with distress, peppered with it. For some of us, we've experienced this in really heightened ways, like Jake was mentioning over this past year and a half. I remember for me, and I would love to share this with you, um, the first few weeks of the pandemic, it was actually like weirdly exciting for me. Like I got a lot of energy out of it because it was kind of like shaking normal things up. And I like when things change and you kind of kept on your toes. And for me, it was kind of like this extended snow day, right? It was like, okay, our, our regular schedule isn't here. We get to kind of do different things and we get to do things that you'd never done before. Like you have to wash your groceries when you come home or like take off your clothes and clean them after being contaminated uh, by the world around you. But joking aside, uh, at Mercy House, I remember being super excited about just having a new challenge, uh, setting up the stream so people would be able to connect, thinking about how we were going to use our creativity um, and innovation to just create new opportunities for worship and discipleship. It was like a problem to solve. And it wasn't a big deal because at the time we were like, it's only going to last a few weeks, so, you know, what's the big deal, right? But then like a year has passed since then, and you're like, okay, it was a big deal. So when it became a big deal for me, it actually was, it wasn't until a few months in. I remember I was preaching a sermon in the basement, like right below where we are right now. We had a dark little dingy studio down there, um, and, and I spent about 45 minutes just doing my best to like 
pour myself out, be as engaging as possible for this camera um, to do justice to the text, but also I just knew that there were tons of people in our church family and beyond who were just weary, who were just exhausted, who were at their breaking point. And so I'm just trying to captivate them and their, their attention and direct it toward the Word of God because I knew that they needed it just as much as I needed it as well. And they're trying to watch along on this little computer screen and have a sense of worship on a Sunday morning. And I remember Megan was in the room uh, near the end. We had just signed off uh, and, and turned off the stream, and Megan left, and I was just kind of left there by myself for a minute, just in the cold, dark room, in silence, and I remember staring at that little green light on the camera. And that was the moment where I just hit my breaking point. Like, I sat there in the dark, and I think between the isolation and the loneliness of the lockdown, it had kind of culminated into this, like, one moment of palpable distress and depression. And I sat in the dark on that Sunday morning, and to me, like, it wasn't a snow day anymore. And I sat there, and I was just, I was broken. I don't think I was alone in this either. In the past year, we've seen just a staggering increase in anxiety and depression, uh, from one in 10 adults reporting that they were suffering symptoms of anxiety and or uh, depressive disorder in January of 2019 to four in 10 adults reported in January of 2021. In, in the young adults ages 18 to 24, which is probably the majority of this room here, we're seeing five in 10 people. That's 50% of this room of young adults who are suffering symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder. Alcohol and substance abuse is just through the roof right now, as is poor mental health and, and, and rates of suicidal ideation. And, but while the pandemic is unprecedented in our lifetime, um, and, and all the economic and social fallout from it are likely significant contributing factors that are increasing these outcomes, the reality is that it's only exacerbating an underlying problem. The, the pandemic didn't introduce some sort of new problem to the human condition that we've never experienced before. It further revealed the already broken human experience in the world that we live in. One that the psalmist and all of Israel knew very well when they sang, In my distress, I called out to the Lord. So one thing I want us to take away from this is that distress is normal on this side of heaven. It's common, even. And so the first thing I'd want to say is that if you're experiencing distress, anxiety, sorrow, or pain, or depression, just know that like, you're not alone in it. There's not something peculiar or strange happening to you. You're not weak. There's nothing shameful about it or wrong about it. But distress is an indicator that something is wrong, that something is off. And what I want to encourage us to do this morning as we look at this text and talk about these things is to be open to where we might be in distress and to lean into it for these next 20 minutes or so. All right, so there are many cultural, as we think about distress, there are many cultural and worldly remedies for dealing with distress. As I mentioned earlier, alcohol and substance abuse has skyrocketed this past year, and that's one way to deal with this stress, to numb it, to escape from it. And even the numbing and escaping doesn't have to be illicit. One of the things I found is that time spent on mobile devices, browsing, and using social media has increased by 215% in this past year alone. Streaming movies, specifically children and family movies, has increased 518%. That is incredible in a bad way. So ways to deal with stress are not just limited to mindless escape, but what you're seeing on social media and in the world around us is that there's a significant increase in, in self-improvement and personal development and self-care, which, hear me, like, I'm not saying that these are evil or sinful, but in contrast, look at what the psalmist does in their distress. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called to the Lord. And while the psalmist didn't have... Uh, access to Hulu or Peloton, uh, there were no shortage of quick fixes or distractions from their distress. Some of the consistent coping mechanisms talked about in Scripture are based on the comforts of food and wine. And during that time, we also see lots of idol worship and making sacrifices to help appease a displeased God. And perhaps maybe the most common remedy for stress uh, for Israel and for us today is just to kind of stuff it down and just to push through it to ignore the anxiety, the pain, the sorrow until we arrive at the inevitable breaking point where our optimism and our just sheer force of will can't hold it all together anymore. 
But this is not what the psalmist is doing. They instead call out to the Lord. They cast their anxieties on the Lord, like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. They cast their burdens on the Lord, like we see in Psalm 55, verse 22. The psalmist doesn't medicate. They don't try to escape. They don't try to grit their teeth and just bear down in their distress. They go to God with their distress. An incredible perk of being in relationship with God is being able to communicate to the creator of the universe. And not just merely communicate with them, but to have unique and special access to help in times of distress. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not discounting the help that we can receive from other sources in life. This is not to say that therapeutic services or professional counseling or even just a day of this self-care, having some quiet time of reflection can't be profoundly helpful. But what the psalmist is getting at is that the first and foremost highest priority of help for them is also the greatest authority that there is. I think for most of us, we've been on a customer service call, right? And you're on that call, and, and you're just like trying to have a problem solved, and it's very clear that the person on the phone does not have the ability or the authority to help you. They might not have the knowledge to help you. And so if you've been in that place before, what do you do? You say, is there anybody else I can talk to? Right? You don't, you're not rude about it. You just say, is there like a manager who may be able to help? Like, is there someone else you can put on the line for us It's like going to the person who doesn't have the ultimate authority or the power to help us when we have access to that. And that's the question for us as Mercy House. How often do we seek out just lesser solutions for our distress when we have the God of the entire universe available to us? How often do we first seek solutions for our anxiety and our fears in creation instead of creator? The psalmist is acutely aware that there's no one wiser on earth to go to than God. There's, there's nobody who's more comforting on earth to go to than God. There's no one more approachable, more compassionate, more merciful, more caring for you, more loving. There's no greater father or friend to go to in Mercy House. There, there, there's no one more fit or motivated to respond to your pleas for help when you are in distress. You need to know that. And as a psalmist says this, he doesn't just rely on blind hope or or some sort of superstition. He's not encouraging his brothers and his sisters to just think positively or maybe to empty their minds of their distress through meditation. The psalmist is recounting from his own experience and his own testimony. Look at the verse in its entirety. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And he answered me. Mercy House, the truth about prayer is that it works in that communication with God. It's not kind of like this imaginary experience that requires you to be really creative, and it's kind of like daydreaming, and you're kind of imagining the response of God. When we pray to God, He hears us. He hears us. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. It's not just this one psalm here. As you're reading 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 Peter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Isaiah 65, verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear This is why the psalmist calls out to God. Not because it's personally therapeutic for them or they're having a cathartic experience of venting their frustration or getting to kind of air out their grievances. It's not just crying for the sake of crying, but because in their distress, as they appeal to the greatest authority in the universe, that authority hears and responds to them. Mercy else, that's astounding. And as you read through Scripture, 1,500 years later, James sings the same tune that's echoed here in this psalm. In chapter 5, verse 13 of the book of James, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James understood this concept that when you pray, God hears you. When you're in distress, you can call out to the Lord and he will respond. Now, as we talk about prayer, it's mysterious, no doubt, right? As we pray and make requests, uh, God's answer might be yes, it might be no, it might be not now or not yet, but he does respond. 
I think for us, as, 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 we, as we look at this, uh, thinking about prayer, it, it, it makes it really difficult for us to always have a perfect understanding of prayer. Um, but as we understand, I totally lost myself in my notes, I'm sorry. I was, I was trying to vamp and get through it, but I couldn't do it. So it's not a mistake for us as we read this that um, it's the first line of this song. And what it's doing is it's setting the tone for the entire uh, long road home for, for, um, for Israel as they head to Jerusalem. It sets the heart posture, acknowledging and affirming the hardships and the challenges that are inevitable, inevitable but also revealing that the greatest blessing for those of us who are in a relationship with God uh, gets to exercise is being able to pray in our distress to God. And so like I mentioned, prayer, this idea of prayer is, is really mysterious. And if you have more questions about prayer, I would highly recommend that you check out our Mercy House University podcast. They go through an eight-part podcast asking questions like, why pray if God already knows what's best? Or why pray if God already knows what you're going to pray for? Or has science disproved prayer? So lots of really good, hard questions that are tackled in that podcast. And you can find it at mercyhouse365.org mhu. So again, if you have questions about prayer or just want to learn more about it, I highly recommend that resource. For the Israelites, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and their long road back home was just chock full of distress. But the psalmist doesn't pen a verse about some of the logistical nightmares that they face while traveling hundreds of miles on foot. They don't talk about the threat of disease or sickness among the travelers as they go. They, they don't touch on the highway bandits and raiders that would have left them robbed or killed. Look at what they cry out to the Lord about as the most threatening concern on the road. Look at verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? What, and, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree? Many of us are taught at an early age the value of honesty and telling the truth, and also at the same time the wickedness and kind of the dangers of lying and being dishonest. I think one of the most sad things about being a parent is watching your kids discover new ways to sin. Uh, it's actually really sad because it, as much as wickedness and folly is bound up in their hearts as little children, there are these moments where you see their brokenness and their inner sin manifest themso uh, themselves externally for the first time. And whether it's you're, you're seeing like this anger that's bubbling up and it's boiling over, and for the first time you see them exercise like sin by pushing or shoving or hitting somebody for the first time, like, it's really sad when you see that. You might uh, have a moment, and we've had this moment, where we see our kids realizing for the first time that like, they have some sense of autonomy, and they learn that they could say no outright to our faces, like just defy whatever instruction that we're giving them, which is also really sad. But by far, I think the, the, the worst thing that we've been able to see uh, so far is them discover lying, as they discover deception. And I think it's because while anger and general rebellion can be reactionary and, and, and impulsive responses, um, deceitfulness requires premeditation. Like, you have to use your imagination. You have to compose yourself in order to perform a lie. Lying requires so much thoughtfulness, and it's, it's kind of scary, and it's sad to watch your, your children discover that and to do it, and often to you for the first time. It's sad. But as much as we know that lying is bad, that's not the main thrust of these verses as we read them. Surely there's obviously the implication that one should not lie or be deceitful, but these verses represent the effects of the lies on a person. The psalmist cries out to the Lord who hears and responds by saying, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The, the source of this great distress for the psalmist is their experience of being victim to lies and deception. And it's this experience of being lied to and deceived that the psalmist is just pleading that God would rescue them from. If you've ever been lied to or lied about, and you have that moment of realization where you just unearth that truth, like you can relate to some of these cries for help, especially if you're just bombarded in these, uh, these attacks of lies and deception. Lies are so insidious and so damaging because what they do is they distort our entire reality. Our, our brains as humans require grounding, okay? 
Uh, we crave truth and we crave consistency. So even physically, we need to know like which way is up and which way is down. We check our watches and our calendars constantly to get our bearings in time and in space. We all operate under this assumption of truthfulness, that a green light actually means go, or that a stop sign means that you should stop. And even if you consider yourself the most skeptical person in the world, when you go to a door and there's a handle that says pull, you're going to pull on it. Like, not many of us would just walk up and, like, test out the door which way it goes. No matter how skeptical you are, you still sit down in your chairs without getting down your hands and knees and, like, checking the structural integrity of the chair before you sit down on it. The, the, when, when we experience lies and deception, they upend our reality. They, they make us question the very nature of our existence, and they create anxiety and distrust toward everyone and everything around us. Lies create chaos. And it's no wonder that Satan, our, our ultimate adversary, whose primary objective is, is to steal, kill, and destroy, is referred to as, the, as a liar and the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. And so the psalmist understands that the greatest weapon that an enemy has is not a stone that they can whip at your head or a sword that they can slash you with, but the treacherous schemes of lying and deception. Mercy House, for us, it's no different here today. One of the most damaging and dangerous things we can experience on the long road of life are the lies of Satan. Not just the tangible hardships of life, but how Satan uses those hardships to communicate lies about who we are and also who God is. Our greatest danger is not sickness or, or pain, but that Satan would use our experience of sickness and pain to have us believe that God is a God who doesn't care about us, who isn't compassionate when we're sick or we're injured. Poor performance or outright failure at work or, or in school can be really painful, but what's even worse than that is how Satan can use failure to make us question our value or our worth. Many of us have experienced heartbreak, and heartbreak is awful. Experiencing rejection is awful. But what's worse is when Satan uses rejection to, to, to help us, to make us believe that, that we're either unwanted or just unlovable. For many of us, succumbing to temptation and falling into sin is terrible. What's worse, though, is when Satan lumps on guilt and lumps on shame onto us and has us believe that we're just too far gone in our sin, that God could never forgive us, and that there's just absolutely no hope for us in our sin. Mercy House, be concerned much less about just the, the trivial challenges and potholes and the flat tires of life and be ever vigilant about the schemes and the lies of Satan who leverages our hardships to inflict serious inner and emotional damage and trauma. The challenges that we face aren't physical in this world. You see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Mercy House, as we talk about being lied to and being deceived, the worst thing about being deceived, the worst thing about being deceived is that you don't know that you're deceived. That if Satan is doing his job right, and unfortunately he is the best at doing his job, then many of us are just blissfully unaware of the deception and the lies that have crept into our hearts and into our minds. And some of us are so deceived that it's like asking a fish, hey, can you point out the water that you're in? They can't because it's their entire existence. It's all that they know. On some level, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think that we have to have the humility to recognize that there are areas where we might be deceived, where we might be believing lies, where we might actually not know what's right or what's wrong, regardless of how much conviction we may feel or how clear something appears to us. Lies and deception are Satan's greatest and most dangerous weapons that he uses against us. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of this. But the response is not to live in constant and intense fear or to live in hyper-skepticism of everything that goes on around us. We've been given the opportunity to combat lies and the deception of Satan. I think there are three ways to do this. So the first way, we're seeing it right here. Cry out to God. 
cry out to God. Pray to God, like the psalmist here, asking him to reveal your blind spots, to expose the lies of the enemy, to give you an awareness of the lies you might be buying into, to see how they might be damaging you as a person, and then also to have the power to put those lies to death in you. So cry out to God. Another way that we can combat lies and deception is to know God. Know God. Titus 1-2 says God never lies. That's a piece of his character. That's who he is. Hebrews 6.18 takes it one step further and says that it's impossible for God to lie, that there's no deception in his nature. And one way that we expose lies and schemes of Satan is by knowing truth, which enables us to correct ourselves in our deception. And the way that we know God is through God's word. You want to know truth and and expose the lies that, that you're constantly being bombarded with? You read God's word. You meditate on God's word. You study God's word. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus gets at this. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know truth, and the truth shall set you free. Know God. The third way to combat lies and deception is to be in Christian community. To be in Christian community. Doing Christianity by yourself is like going to war by yourself. There's nobody to watch your back. No one to help expose your blind spots or to speak truth into the lies that you might be believing. Not only is traveling down the long road home by yourself foolish and unwise, you're also missing out on the incredible blessing of fellowship and edification that God has established here in the church for you to experience. So join the church. Join the people who, who, who were recognized earlier this morning who made a commitment to join the covenant community that is here at Mercy House. And that's not just a plug for Mercy House. Like, I don't care if you join First Baptist Church down the road or College Church down in Northampton. Uh, Join the local body. Commit yourself to being part of a covenant community of believers, a a part of the mandate of covenant community members uh, of these local churches is to speak truth with grace into the lives of other brothers and sisters, to have people who are living in community looking out for you, speaking truth into you. That's what people like Nate Corshane, it's like they're jumping, jumping into this community because of the blessing of having people speak truth into their lives, but also the other way around is that there is a hope and an expectation that those who join the membership of a church would also contribute as truth bearers and lie exposers within the church for their brothers and sisters, for their joy, for their good. So join the local body. Mercy House, my challenge for myself and for all of us as a church is to grow in these things, to grow in our desire for truth, to grow in our reliance on God to expose the lives that, lies that we've been believing in places where we might be deceived. I want to be able to grow in our pursuit of truth through God's word and as a community together of believers speaking truth with gentleness and grace when we see someone wandering and wavering. All right, let's read these last verses here and we'll finish for the morning. Verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I think if we're honest, uh, the first song on this album, this album is a bit of a downer, right? It's a little sad, not super joyful. The psalmist closes their song with this sad lament that revealing the fact that as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, someone who's traveling far and wide without a permanent residence, uh, they feel far from home. Meshech is in modern-day Turkey. Kedar is in the Arabian desert. And as a psalmist is traveling between these two places, which are geographically very uh, far apart, they're experiencing what is the misery of being an alien in the foreign lands. 
And just to be clear, being an alien during this time wouldn't be enjoyable. <laughs> Today, we have so many television shows uh, that talk about travel and food uh, and, and just glorify these cross-cultural experiences as like dream vacations, which sure, I think today it would be awesome to be an alien in a foreign land. But you have to realize that for the psalmist and for Israel, being an alien in a foreign land was absolutely awful. You would be traveling among people who had different gods than you, had different languages from you, had different cultural norms. They would have treated you very poorly as an outsider, if not just completely overtly hostile towards you. So we're not talking about like PBS's globe trekker here. The psalmist is in incredible distress and makes it clear here that their heart is just longing to be at home. Look at verse 6. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The problem for the psalmist is not only that they're far from home, but that they've, uh, they're living in this conflict as they try to make their non-home a home for themselves. They spent too much time making their dwelling in places that are not home for them, and that's adding to their distress. I think some of us here are doing that unconsciously. Maybe for some of us who aren't Christians, we have this feeling inside of us, kind of this longing for something more in our hearts, but we are where we are. Like, we've kind of had to make peace with where we're dwelling, the land that we're dwelling in, the reality that we're living in. And even though that might sometimes feel like it's leading to incredible anxiety or distress or heartbreak, we don't really feel like there's any other option. Like, there is no other home. This is the existence that I'm in. There's no other hope for rest or for peace beyond what I can see with my own eyes. And some of us who do have a relationship with God, um, we're just not making our home with God. We're too easily satisfied with the lies and the deception that this world offers to us. Or maybe what we're hearing is that we can make a home in what this world has to offer, whether that be in our careers, or maybe we can make a home in a family that we can build, or maybe we can dwell in what other people think about us. And while none of these things are inherently bad, uh, Satan, the father of lies, he takes good things that God gives us, and he deceives us into thinking that these good things are then ultimate things. And in that terrible exchange, we're deceived in, into dwelling, making our home in things that are never ultimately going to satisfy us completely. We're deceived into thinking that the world and what it has to offer is the only home that we have, which couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 6 and 7 again say, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. In these final verses of this song, you see the psalmist contrast himself from those around him by identifying specifically with peace. The word for peace here is shalom, shalom. It's a word that's used often in Hebrew literature, and it means wholeness, it means completeness, it means harmony. And you may have heard home is where the heart is, but for Israel, home is where there's shalom. The thing to remember about Israel is that they're not strangers to nomadic traveling. They're quite used to wandering deserts and living in exile away from a, a native home. But in their traveling, what they've been able to learn in their relationship with God is that home is not a building with four walls and a roof. It's not a place where, where everyone just speaks the same language, everyone eats the same food. Home is where there is shalom. And for Israel, the greatest source of peace of wholeness and completeness that they have is found in God. So for Israel, home is where God is. Home is where God is. This whole sermon series is based on this foundational truth. The long road home is not this physical pilgrimage back to some sort of sacred location. Israel's pilgrimage back to the temple of Jerusalem where God resided at was where their shalom was at. And for us, this is representative of our return back to the worship of God and the shalom of God. It speaks to the reality that as we navigate through life on this earth, we are not home. No matter where you are in this world, no matter where you build your home, no matter what your career leads you to do, your home is not here on this earth. This isn't all there is, and this isn't all that we're made for. We're not made to be satisfied by the deceptions of Satan in this fallen and this broken world. So if you're hearing this and, and you feel homesick, and that's something that you've experienced before, 
Let me tell you, that's a good thing. It's okay to be homesick because the reality is that there is no true deep and eternal shalom in your work or in your family or in your success or in your accomplishments. There's no shalom in being beautiful enough or being strong enough or being happy enough. There's no shalom in having enough Instagram followers or having a successful business or having perfect, obedient children. There is no shalom for which our hearts were made for and which our hearts long for anywhere under the sun. And so what hope is there? Are we just eternally homeless without shalom, without peace, without the opportunity for wholeness or completeness? Does God's word just leave us depressed discouraged and in despair, just like every emo rock song? By no means. And Paul, in the New Testament, navigates this very similar conflict with the church at Ephesus. In chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. And so making peace and, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul takes this sad lament in Psalm 120 and in a second movement of a song, right? He, in the composition, he, he moves it into an incredibly epic and hopeful rock ballad. What he's doing is he's reminding the Ephesians of their journey of being brought home to experience the shalom of God. He's saying, Ephesians, remember, uh, before you knew God, you were so far gone. You were aliens in a foreign land, without a home, without any shalom. You were aliens because you didn't have God. But you who were so far alienated from God because of your sin have now been brought near to God. Mercy House, this is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have a relationship with God, hear this as the truth that counters the lies and the deceptions of the world around you. You who are so far gone from God because of your brokenness and your sin have been brought into peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus took what kept you far off and far away, and he took that sin upon himself and destroyed the wall of hostility that stood between you and with God. And what he's done is that he's made peace with you through Jesus Christ so that you would be reconciled to him. You'd be able to be made whole, made complete, be in harmony with, be at peace with, and have shalom with God. This is what you're hearing this morning. This is the gospel of peace that's being extended to you to be received by faith at no cost just through trust and faith in him. If you are sick of being homesick and want to experience home, if you're sick of being a foreigner, in a, in, or I'm sorry, an alien in a foreign land, if, if you want to experience just shalom with God, that's what's available for you this morning. So I encourage you to receive it. If you want to talk more about this, I'm going to be in the back after service and others will have little placards. We'd love to, to talk more about this with you. If you're not ready today but just want to learn more about what it means to have this shalom, to have reconciliation with God, our website mercyhouse365.org respond has a bunch of resources for what it looks like to start a relationship with God. And there's a way on there to let us know if you want to meet up, have coffee, and talk about these things or if you have any questions. When you receive this, the beautiful thing about the message of shalom and of reconciliation is that it's absolutely free. It, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to do anything in order to receive it. And now that we do receive it, how can we not extend the invitation, the same invitation that we received out to those who are in distress, who are alienated from God, who are just searching desperately for a home? The shalom of God is not something to be hoarded. It's not something to be uh, guarded for yourself. Shalom is shared. 
That's what I want to call us to together as those who have experienced this shalom, to go and to share that shalom with others in this valley and in the world. For those of us here this morning who have put their faith in the reconciling work of Jesus, I want to tell you this. Welcome home. Welcome home. Each week we take communion and we we were reminded that the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we're reminded of just the great cost of the reconciliation that we have with God. But at the same time, we're also reminded of the humble offering of peace that is extended to us by grace through Jesus. Consider that this morning, as, as you receive this bread and as you receive this cup, in a lot of cultures around the world, um, sharing a meal is really symbolic of peace. We're about to go to a wedding this afternoon, and, 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 and that meal that we're sharing all together is one where we get to experience wholeness Tension is broken. We're able to experience fellowship with one another, get to know one another, and that's what's represented by this meal that Jesus offers to you. It's exactly what it represents. For us who have once been far off as foreigners and aliens apart from God, who have been brought near in order to enjoy and participate in this meal as an extension of peace, we get to experience true shalom with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done the incredible work necessary for us to have shalom in you. God, we confess that we struggle often to discern lies from truth, that we ourselves now might be deceived by Satan, by the world, to believe wrongly about ourselves and to believe wrongly about you. And we pray that you would do the miraculous work of revealing these lies to us. God, we cry out to you in our distress. Lord, we pray that you would grow and increase our understanding and knowledge of you through your word, that we'd be able to discern what is true and what is noble and what is great and righteous and that we'd be able to identify the lies and put those to death. I pray for those in this room who are not part of a local church body. Lord, would you put it on their hearts to join a local church body, not just to become a member or to be recognized up front, but to experience the sweet fellowship of church as you've developed and designed it and we see in Scripture. Father, we thank you for drawing us near that though we were far away, through your Son, you have made it possible for us to share this meal with you. So I pray for us we, as we take communion, that would be on our hearts, that we would have gratefulness to you for what you've done. Lord, none of this is possible without you. And so we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new here, we're super glad that you're here. The way that we do communion during COVID is you'll see a little cup right below your chair, and um, you open up one side and you open the other. You'll, you'll figure it out pretty quick. If you're not a Christian, this is just super stale bread and old juice. But for those of us who were far and have been brought